welcome. Thank you so much for being on. Well, one, we're excited to feature you in the magazine. Yes. I know that we had been in touch, I think about a year or so ago. And I'm so sorry, just with my own battle of COVID that we weren't able to, to catch up then. But glad to talk with you now. Same, same. Yeah, I keep doing projects. That's the good thing. It's not, you know, if we miss one, there's always another one. Uh-huh. Yes, oh, yeah, yeah, here you have some, some really exciting things. <laughs> so this will just be a conversation. We have sort of a list of questions that we go through with you. Um, but really what we love is that this is a conversation. Um, the One Story Up podcast itself in the, in the Afro-Chic magazine is all about celebrating, um, you know, creatives across the African diaspora. And we're really excited to talk about your project, your job project, but then also we understand you have a new project that's coming out for Juneteenth. So basically, we just kind of wanted to start at the beginning, really, and, and ask, you know, when did your journey with music begin? And when did you know that it would become such a large part of your life? So my journey with music began when I was a small, tiny child. Um, I was playing the piano by the time I was four. And I was like serious about it by the time I was six. So, you know, this really, truly is a lifelong journey, which is one of the things I find fascinating about music. I don't know any other profession calling, you know, um, life, life path that is so long. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are other, there are other vocations that begin very early sports, dance, but they don't last until you're in your seventies or eighties. So I always feel really fortunate to be on this very, very long journey because I think you have this tremendous opportunity to evolve and, change and grow. And I try to connect with that every day. Um, So, I mean, the journey, the piano journey began so young and has been consistent, has been the most consistent thing in my life. But the journey to the, to becoming the artist that I am, of course, began then, but Mm. has really I I think it's really taken shape over the last, I want to say 10 years, something like Mm -hmm. that, just really kind of locking into what it is that I want and need to do with my music and what I want to say and what I want to give and what I want to leave behind, you know, the big questions, the understanding of self. Yes. Wow. And I, 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 I like, Sitting here thinking like, oh, when you were four, my, my mother always wanted my sister and I to play piano. And we, we started um, when we were like six or seven and it never really took. And her whole thing was, I want you to play piano so you can have nice fingers. <laughs> so that was ladylike fingers. Um, and so, you know, we we got the nice fingers, but definitely the, the we didn't stick with music. And I think it's it's interesting, like you said, that it was something that was in you from such a young age and that is continued on this trajectory for yeah. you um, and stayed with you. Yeah. So that's, that's really amazing. You know, on my side, my mother plays piano. She likes piano and my sister would play a little bit, but uh, I have my father's hands. So uh, short stubby fingers <laughs> were not <laughs> very well at all. Um, but it's you know, interesting. All, so like, say, all kinds of hands actually can work for piano. I have my father's hands, which I'm so grateful for because I think they're beautiful. And also, um, I love looking at the pictures of myself when I was really tiny. I had just this natural hand for the piano, but mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you also that piano hands are not ladylike. They are so strong. I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> you figured that's good, right? 
Now, so that's interesting. But you talk about the your 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 journey uh, as an artist, from you know knowing that you love the piano to coming into becoming an artist, to the artist that you have been, to the artist that you are now. How would you kind of describe that evolution? And is there a point or a period that you can really point to and say, here's where it all started to turn for me, or here's where it all started to come together? Yeah, I mean, this is a big question for me. It's a big piece of my creative life. So I think that really everything that I care about and that I'm doing stems from an initial um, lack of identity in this field and the search for that identity and the finding of that identity. Mm. So to clarify that, you know, you're four years old, you're this little brown girl at the piano. This is a world that looks nothing like you. And I always Mm -hmm. really like illustrate that by the experience of being in the piano studio, taking your piano lesson. And there are literally pictures on the wall of all of these old, dead, white, bearded, grumpy, Mm -hmm. you know that's who you are truly physically looking up at all the time yeah um and I fell in love with their music and but they could have been aliens as far as I was concerned in terms of like feeling Mm -hmm. a human connection Mm. also I think you know just the way that history has been told and the way even the stories of those composers were told to me when I was little all you're hearing about is genius and you know genius that existed in other centuries on other continents yes so there's just this disconnect and you accept that disconnect so Mm -hmm. my truth was that I love this music I was going to make my way in this music and I was going to feel like an outsider in this music okay fine done you know here we go and you you fight that battle on a daily basis and you don't know that you're fighting it right Mm -hmm. you're fighting that classical music historically you're fighting that already by virtue of being female you're fighting yeah. it by virtue of being a person of color. Um, and that just continued. And I think you don't notice the extra effort and like um, energy that that demands. Yes. Yeah. So, and I had a very strange childhood. Um, so my father died when I was very small. And so, you know, my mom was struggling to raise three girls by herself. And we were, you know, when my father died, I think sort of the black part of my um, community also kind mm. of went away. Went so away. Was very like white Eurocentric classical music focused world feeling very other homeschooled. I mean, <laughs> name a weird, yeah. right? and then when I was in my early teens we moved to Europe my 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 mom and my Mm -hmm. sisters and I um and we were studying there and on the one hand that was very much more familiar because the music the classical music is so much more central to the culture so I didn't feel like a weirdo in that respect but of course felt even more foreign by virtue of being a foreigner Mm. um also years of being called exotic, <laughs> which, you know, right? So then when I came back to the States, I just had this need, like this built up need to understand what it even was going to mean in my life to be American. I'd sort of chosen to be here again without my family. I came back with a, with a boyfriend and, you know, had to confront for the first time, really all these questions of identity and where do I fit? And in this culture, in this country, and in this art form. And that's when I started looking into American music. Like, I just wanted to kind of understand, like, figure out, really, was this only ever written by white men? You know, 
this doesn't really make sense given what I do know about America and American history. And so that urgency of finding my place and my meaning in this tradition drove me to start this excavation. But then as soon as I started excavating and started sharing what I had excavated, I immediately understood that my search for identity wasn't just about me, that, you know, there is a whole world of people who have not been included in this tradition or have not known that they were included in this tradition. So that's why I say this is like an ongoing process and um, a, I mean, a mission and something that I think I, I'm still in the process of under, I, I'm, I'm still in the process of understanding the scope of this and the potential of this. Yeah, I love that you said, you know, it's a mission. And I think one of the things that struck Brian and I about your work was how much history, um, like you said, the excavation of that, that American history of music um, and also just creating and showcasing representation where it's been um, extracted or left out of, of the history books. I think that's so critical and important um, what you're doing for all of us, but also in particular for young people who are entering music, you know, kids who are in school getting that first instrument and you're, you're picking it up, but you're not sure if you kind of see yourself represented in that language of music. Um, but you're showing that we, we, we're, we're there and that we've been there, um, you know, all along, um, the whole time. So it's really interesting to me how you, how there's this historical narrative. And kind of seeing how that's, has, how that's pushed your own journey. And we wanted to ask, so in this kind of meta way, what does the piano mean to you? You know, how does it stand? How do you see it as an instrument among instruments? Like what's its place, mm-hmm. you know, as it, across so many genres of music? And then what does it mean to you personally as a means of expression? Oh, that's such a great question. No one's ever asked me that before, honestly. <laughs> it's really interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot in, in the context of this Joplin project, because I think the superpower of the piano is that it, was a household instrument. And so it was the center of music in the home in a very accessible, tangible, everyday way. Joplin's music is a perfect example, right? This is an art form that develops like kind of, you know, it's very, it's very DIY, you know, it's cobbling together different things. It's um, really entertainment, you know, and it's entertainment in the black world and it's a traveling form of entertainment. And then what happens is that at that turn of the 20th century moment, the piano is becoming sort of a central element to homes um, across the country. And I think a wider economic range of people have access to the piano and publishing is taking off and Joplin becomes the king of ragtime and his maple leaf rag sells, you know, a million copies. And those copies are getting sent to whom? To white women who have pianos in their parlors who are starting to play ragtime. So the piano is also like this translator. The piano could take an opera and let you play that music at home. The piano could take ragtime and let you internalize that. The piano can, could, (laughs) and you know, when the two of you are talking about the childhood presence of a piano, I think that's something that we have lost. 
Yes, yeah. yes, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, but that to me is the is historically the the foundational importance of the piano as an instrument is that it was in the home and it was bringing people together around it. And it was, you know, bringing all kinds of music through families. And uh, I think that's such an important history. We were just researching that um, as we were were working on a book and uh, one of the homeowners had a piano. And so we were trying to figure out where this piano was from. And like you said, before radio, before television, you know, the piano was the entertainment tool inside the home and families would sit and and play piano. And it's one of those things now that does feel like it's sort of just, you know, this very luxurious to me, it's like, oh my gosh, if you're, you know, you're very wealthy that you'd have a piano at home. Um, But yes, we grew up with a piano. Brian grew up with, you know, piano as well in the home. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Your mom still plays it. And so when we were asking, so now with, with respect to you personally, if, if, is the piano the only, is it the, the only instrument that you play or what, I guess, where do you feel like your specific connection to the piano comes from? Like, what does it mean to you? Yeah, well, you know, one of my first memories, my first fully formed memories is at the piano. And this is really, I must've been three because I wasn't taking piano lessons yet. So this was one of those little classes where you go, you know, to spend it spend a half an hour where your mom doesn't have to look after you and you know you play music with different instruments and I just have this crystal clear memory of sitting at the piano with the teacher and she was showing me how it worked and I was so fascinated there was this other little kid who was like crawling around on the floor making trouble because he was bored and she had to pay attention to him and I just remember thinking like being so bewildered that he wasn't as fascinated as I was I really fell in love with the instrument I fell in love with my, my first teacher was amazing um and it's just where I feel comfortable I have really never tried my hand at any other instrument which is kind of weird I think um, I probably should but it's I have this interesting relationship with the piano too I think I'm a really natural player in the sense of um very instinctively finding the singing voice in the piano. Like that's what I'm attuned to. Some You can play the piano very vertically. I mean, it's a percussion instrument. Right. I, I experience the piano this way, like the lines of it. And that's what I hear. And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm just really, really happy there. Yes. Yeah. No, I love that. And last night before, just to prepare ourselves, we, we sat and listened to your, to your album, the Joplin album. And um, it was like listening to singing. I did, I did think that like, I was like, Oh, it's so interesting. It's songs that some of them I've heard before, but the way and the reinterpretation the interpretation that you've done, it did feel like the piano was singing in a way. Um, and that it really does touch you in a, a unique way, the way that you play the piano. And I've always liked that with instruments where you, you realize that, they can be played just like you said. You can be played in very structured ways, where you can kind of see. It, it almost feels like you can feel the lines and the confines of like this instrument does this in this area. But then there are other ways where you can hear it played. Um, and jazz was always great for this, where when you would hear a horn or a saxophone, and it would be playing basically the singer's part, and you yeah. could you could hear it and feel it in the same way as without without words. But you could, it, it was moving through the music in the way that. With the same undulations and the same, you know, runs and everything that you would find from, you know, an actual singer. Yeah. 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 And those are the pianists of the past that I'm drawn to also are those pianists who have that ability to 
pull out the singing voice. Yes. Now, I'm really excited to ask this question because I really love this term. So I was happy when I was kind of reading up on you and I was saying this. Like, you've been described as a self-described iconoclast. <laughs> I've always loved that term. It's because people, I, I, people would call me that before I actually knew what it was. So, <laughs> so I just have to ask, what does that title mean to you? And what are the images, icons, norms that you're trying to break? And why are we better off without them? Right. <laughs> I'm so bad at rules. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, honestly, you know how your, your greatest struggles are your greatest gifts, right? So I do think that this sort of outsider experience in my life is my superpower, right? Because I knew very early on that um, there wasn't a model for me. I mean, right. I didn't fit easily anywhere. And I also, I think I saw that I kind of wasn't interested in any of the models that existed. So what does that mean? It means you just like, you just press go and you, along the way, you have to convince a lot of people, you know, (laughs) and you have to um, prove yourself many times. Um, And I think that for for quite a while, that's just like the daily race and the daily fight. For me, I didn't experience that as something, I didn't know I was doing anything that was innovative. You know, I didn't Mm. use words. I I didn't apply those words to myself. I think I was just too busy getting it done. Now, when I look back, and what I've done since the very beginnings of my career, I'm like, what was that? <laughs> you know, like, where did that come from? And how did I have the whatever, the gumption or the moxie or the, you know, the, the genius vision to see that these things were important? I have no idea. These were just like very deep-seated, deep-needed things that I was doing. I mean, a great example is the very first time that I was able to make a record, um, which was, you know, a huge stroke of luck and a huge break and all of that. And I had been pretty much playing 19th century romantic repertoire. And I think the assumption was, well, you know, you're a really young pianist. And so you you make a, a show-offy virtuoso record to, you know, show that you, where you belong in this pantheon. Hmm. And instead that came just at the time that I was getting so interested in American music. So I was like, nah, you know, I think I want to make this album of American music. That's really not known. You know, this wasn't like Rhapsody in Blue. This wasn't the greatest hits. This was music that was sort of from the thirties. that was telling this American story that was becoming so interesting to me. And everyone said, that's not a good idea because, <laughs> because back then it, which was, this is still like the early two thousands, there were record stores. And you needed to have a composer's name on your record. You needed to have, it needed to say Beethoven or Chopin or something. So it would go in that bin. Otherwise it went in the bin that's called, that was called miscellaneous. That was no. right? <laughs> and there weren't any of these, these marketing tools to like tell the story of an album the way that we can now. But I was absolutely persistent and bound and determined to make that record. And I mean, I'm so glad that I did because that was really the root of, you know, everything that's come after 
and it did well. <laughs> incredible. What did I know? Incredible. Because you're you're your authentic self. I think there is something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's to, to that to authenticity. I think that you know, as creatives, everyone gets afraid. Like you said, you you feel like there's this blueprint or there's something that you're supposed to follow, a path that you're supposed to follow. Um, cause that's kind of what you learn as a child is like, okay, look up to other people. And then, you know, you kind of try to fashion your life in that way. But I love the idea of you being a pianist who doesn't follow the rules. I'm like, that's actually really cool to me. Cause I don't know in my mind. It's like that image of someone who plays the piano is the same in terms of, like you said, it's those old white guys. It's, you know, yeah. it's Beethoven or, you know, so you're thinking about, you know, this sort of box that we're all kind of been given and then realizing like there's it's so it can be so much more broad and that there is a bigger story um to be told and um you know I think we all are lucky that you are someone who is telling that story and bringing it to all of us and I think we also always look at you know you think of just the 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 genre itself right you know classical music you think okay very structured very rule-based People who play this music are comfortable with the rules. They want to follow the rules. And you, you don't really think of it as a place where great innovation takes place. And so, you know, and well, I think we'll maybe probably talk about this later on, but, you know, it's it's one of sort of a, a number of misconceptions that go on from the outside. We don't think about. It's not, it's not a misconception. Right. It is actually really part of that culture. And it's something that, you know, I and many people are trying to shift for the next generation. But what shocks me is that still now when I'm working with, you know, kids who are just starting out in conservatory, it's still the same. And the the basic approach to the repertoire is still the same. And it's still as mm-hmm. narrow more or less as it was when I was in school. And I think that's what felt so off kilter to me because mind you, when I say homeschooled about my education, take that very broadly because it was just totally haphazard and like yes. <laughs> and I'm pretty much self-educated and I'm, you know, just read everything and there wasn't any rhyme or reason or structure to it. So that experience of just like letting your mind guide you to what you wanted to know next compared to this classical music training where it was so prescribed. And I remember thinking how, how insane it was. So here I was in a class of other pianists, you know, we're all like at the same stage in our training, we all have the same ambitions and we're all playing exactly the same, like 20 pieces of music in a, in a repertoire that's vast and endless, but the, the lists for your auditions and your competitions and the lists that your teacher would assign you so narrow. And that's still true. And I think that a lot of this, whether you're, you know, looking into the music of composers of color or women or whatever, whatever that's out, outside of that beaten path, it's yeah. so essential so that people can discover their own voice because it's really hard to find your own voice when you are marching in lockstep, you know, with all of these other um, fellow artists. Yes. Yeah. Do you want to do the next? No. Okay. Um, so one of the things we saw we were looking through was that reflection really feels like it's an ongoing theme in your work. You know, mm-hmm. so now we have your most recent with his, you know, reflections on Scott Joplin, but then we've seen you also have done albums which were on um the work of Luke Ellington Duke Ellington I don't know where Luke Ellington came from and also Langston Hughes that's what it is. I took the L from Langston I put it in. <laughs> anyway um so why do you feel like these revisitings are important for us as human beings and what special attributes does music have 
what what special possibilities does it open up for us to reflect? So I think cultural memory is so much more important than what we usually call history, right? What we Mm -hmm. usually call history is a story that one person or one small group of people chose to write. And then we take that as truth. But I think there's something else that we carry inside that can be tapped into and that the information that we can feed into that cultural cultural memory can inform our relationship to the past, which is so important, and our existence in the future and also, you know, what we take into the, sorry, our existence in the present and what we take into the future. So, I mean, I can only take myself sort of, again, as an example, but what I knew about the history of this music was a story that a few people chose to write. What I know now, because of sort of letting myself feel my own cultural leanings or like mm, vibrations or something, Mm. and then feeding information into that gives me a completely different reality and a different understanding of the past. And at a different possibility of what I can create now to shape the future. I don't know if any of this makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yes. Okay. Um, And I think, you know, I'm, I'm so, I'm so optimistic about what will come of, you know, what we're currently trying to do across the board, not just in the field of music, but, you know, in re-examining history and trying to redefine, you know, what history is and, just the different opportunity that that offers to so many people in terms of belonging, ownership, um, participation, like having the caring, you know? Yes, for sure. And I think that I love what you said about cultural memory. I mean, that's such a beautiful statement and you know, um, I wanted to know, you know, for you, the album Reflections, Scott Joplin Reconsidered, what drew you to Joplin? What was that connection for you um, to make this album? I feel like it's one of those things when I, when we were listening to it and Brian and I on, on Sundays, we listen to classical music. So we have like this sort of um, black classical music and we'll have like um, Joseph Boulogne, um, we'll have jazz liberators in there because we include in our in our home jazz as part of classical music. Um, and we love when people mix jazz and hip hop. Um, and then I was like listening to the album last night. I was like, oh man, this has to be added to our classical music playlist because I want to like mix the ragtime in there too and kind of see how it all fits together. Um, but yeah, what drew you to Joplin? You know, what was that connection for you to revisit and reconsider his work? Yeah. Um, I mean, again, you know, this is like the lifelong journey. So I played the entertainer when I was really small. Right. And I have, I have, I think a a significant memory of that because by the time I was six or seven and I played that piece again, I'm already knee deep in classical music. So it was exciting for me to play this fun, exuberant, different kind of a piece of music when I was the rest of the time, already, you know, playing Mozart and Bach and all of that. So it was just like, it was something that felt um, adventurous and exciting. And then I put Joplin aside for a long time. Um, I think 
doing the work I've been doing and, you know, learning the stories of so many Black classical composers, all of a sudden threw me back in just sort of a um, historical intellectual sense to Joplin's story and realizing, you know, how truncated it, it is, how little people know about his work and his life and the meaning of that. So, you know, I wanted to do this deep dive to just kind of re-examine that. And then I also <laughs> wanted just to get my hands on the music again. Um, but I'm, I think it was exactly the right time because coming to that music now with this understanding of this legacy and this lineage, I have a different understanding of the way it sounds, really the way it sounds, you know, knowing about his classical roots and the time in which he was active and the other people in this community who were working during that time. If you put all those pieces together and you think about where he's coming from, what he's hearing, what is happening in America while he's writing, then you realize that this is deep and profound, this music, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, so you come, you contrast that with what people know about Joplin, which is like nothing. It's that he wrote this one cute tune, you know, and it's some weird, like, I don't know. There's like some image of, you know, a guy with boater hat and suspenders. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, that's, I, I think that people think that ragtime is cute and ragtime's not cute. Ragtime is like really, it was groundbreaking. It was foundational it led to everything else honestly that happened in 20th century american music mm. and um and again it's this portrait i think of you know this really complicated chaotic quickly shifting time mm. yeah and i see so much there's a lot of, of of connection between what you're doing with your music and what we do with design because everything that we do is always about you know design is this window on larger social histories, practices, you know, so many things that come together in the moment of a particular design or a trend or what have you. And so because of that, we're, we're big lovers of history, we're big history nerds. And so every time we write something on design, we always feel like it's important to include some aspect as much as we can of, of a historical perspective because history is such an important part of design. Yeah. And so given all of that, one of my, one of our favorite tracks on the Reflections album is actually the very last one where you actually take time to give uh, a brief sketch of Joplin as a historical figure. Um, so for us, it was so cool to have that on a, on a musical album. It's like, wow, somebody took the time to actually take us into, you know, this story and, and what goes on. And, and really even more so than just the nuts and bolts of history, but just little tastes of the meaning and just like these hints of connection of, of where this position is. So, I just have to ask because we know what we go through when we're doing a design project or work on design. We're going, no, history has to come first. Like it has to be in there. You, you have to have context. So what was that? What was it like for you making a decision to dedicate an entire track to a historical sketch? Like was was there anybody who was like, wait, why are we why are we just talking here? Or like what what's going on? What are you doing? <laughs> No, I mean, I've also, you know, I've found my footing now as a talker, <laughs> right, mm -hmm. with podcasts and the radio show and everything. And I, I think the storytelling is super important. And I think you're right, that history has to come first. But I thought on the album, it actually had to come last. Like, I don't want to get in anyone's face with that. I had done an album a few years ago, and I had done little intros to each track. And the, that ended up not being a great idea, because then, you know, when the thing is playlisted, 
then you're stuck and now you have to either listen or fast forward. So I think, you know, to let everybody just listen to the music, absorb the music, and then um, hear the story. And it's a long track. It's what, like seven minutes. That, yeah. Um, but I, I think storytelling is everything. I think that it uh, completely alters your experience of the music. Um, it, it gives you, yeah, as you said, the context, you know, the context and I don't think it ever takes anything away. I don't think it takes away your ability, you know, to let your imagination run free or have your own emotional response. But I think it just deepens your, your being in that space. Yeah. And I loved it because I felt like it, it keeps you from letting yourself off the hook in mm-hmm. a way, because like you said, you know, to the extent that any of us are aware of ragtime and, uh, I didn't even know that that one piece was called the entertainer, uh, right. but you know, you, you, you know, you've heard it so many times, you know, yeah. you know, uh, ice cream trucks and things like yeah. that. But um, we do think of it as cute. It evokes images, like you said, of the little hat and the, the cane and, you know, Charlie Chaplin, what have you. Um, but then having that moment of actually sitting there and, and getting that reflection saying, no, no, this is, this is where it actually, this is what it's actually doing. This there, there's a much deeper, and in some places, darker story that goes on behind this, you know, it keeps you from just sort of letting it go on in the background and going, oh, that was, you know, this is nice music. Or, you know, I remember, you know, some little pieces of this when I was a kid and then just letting it go from there. So I, I really appreciate that, that was in there. Good. You know, one, one thing you said, Laura, as we were talking was, you know, that your work is also being in service. And I think that that is something that, you know, we don't always think of music that way. It seems like music, like it's entertainment, like music just entertain us, but to be in service with your work has, you know, it means that there's so much more depth to it. Um, I know you have your, your podcast with NPR, and I also seen that you have worked with student groups as well. So I just want to talk more about how do you feel like your work is in service to the community and the things that you're doing in the community? Mm-hmm. And this is another thing that, you know, I think keeps me healthy and happy and powerful as an artist, because especially when you're talking about classical music, you know, you were saying earlier, the piano can be seen as a luxury. Look, classical music, I think, is seen by most people as a luxury, as sort of an elitist art form that, you know, is not current, is not essential. Um, That's not great for your (laughs) self-esteem. If you're giving your whole life to this thing that is so fringe and you know um niche so i think partly because of my background my family background and values and you know my parents who are like civil rights activists and that whole thing and also just wanting to feel like what i do matters um i remember when i was just starting to tour and there would be this thing sometimes called an outreach right and it was so tangential and so like not the priority you know, you're going to, here's the concert. And, oh, by the way, you know, we're going to send you to this school. And A, at that point, I didn't really understand why. Like, why would these kids want to hear me play the piano? I didn't know how to do it. No one had ever trained me. And I did it very badly, very badly. But I so quickly understood the potential of it, you know. And I would have these interactions with the kids that drove me to learn to do well. Um, And then I think that as my work has led me where it has, this whole 
world of discovery and, um, you know, inclusion and, and opening these doors, obviously the place where I'm needed is with young people mm-hmm. so that they can come into this world for the first time feeling, you know, a sense of belonging and a sense of relevancy. So it's probably, no, it is the most important thing I do. Um, And I love doing it. And I love just that ability to honestly, in, you know, what's, what's often a brief interaction again, Mm. to just like open this door just a little enough so that someone can come in. I'm going to tell you the best thing that's happened to me this year. I played in Detroit, I played with the Detroit Symphony a few months ago, oh. and they had their first school concerts back after the pandemic. Oh, yes. And it was what's called their Classical Roots Weekend, which is historically a weekend when they focus on Black composers. And I was playing the Florence Price Concerto. And um, all of these kids came into the hall for this school concert. And Detroit Orchestra Hall is one of our beautiful American concert halls, our Deco Hall, just this, mm. you know, a magical place. And I was playing this concerto and talking to the kids about Florence Price and, you know, her life and all of the things, right. The great migration and the Harlem, the, the Chicago black Renaissance and the styles of music that she was using in her symphonic writing. And they were so responsive and it was so great. And then I went back to my dressing room afterwards and I, I literally just like sat down. I, I, I had this moment where I realized what it, what it had meant I mean, it had been great for me, but what it had just meant for all of these kids who was their first visit to Orchestra Hall in their city, and they're not hearing, you know, Tchaikovsky or, right, or any of the things that we heard at children's concerts. They're hearing music by a Black woman, and they're hearing about her story and her legacy that includes them so directly. And I just, you know, this is what drives me. Like this, this can change lives. It actually can so quickly change the culture. And that's what, because it's so important. And this is, especially when you're working with young people, because it gives you an opportunity to do something that even for us, like we we feel like this is something we're very dedicated to. And I love, we're going to talk about a little bit right now, busted histories. So Yeah. Let's let's pick some busted histories because I mean, anytime you have an opportunity to do it. So, I mean, even when you're talking about as a little girl sitting there and, you know, we have uh, young people in our family. We have a nephew. We have a niece, both of whom are in classical music, one in the, the violin, the other in the piano. And we we think about that experience for them sitting there. And you're looking up and there are pictures of all these old, dead, stern looking white guys. Um, but knowing that that that. Now we're learning more about how that's not the case. Yeah. And so, you know, let's let's start to fix some of these histories and just let's start by connecting some dots and talk about let's go back to ragtime. So looking at ragtime as an art form, where does it fit in the continuum of music, you know, as, a, as an influence on American music and on world music? And where can we see in contemporary music some pieces of what it left behind? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think the fascinating thing about ragtime is that it was very, very short-lived, right? So it's really like a 20-year span. Um, Ragtime is coming into its own in the very last years of the 19th century. And, you know, that's when Joplin is growing up. And just right around the turn of the century, you know, his big successes come in like 1899, 1890, the last, that last decade, the second half of that last decade. Um, and then ragtime is done by the time the 1920s hit, right? Jazz has already emerged and is taking over. 
So it's very fast, but it's, as, as you said, you know, it's bringing together classical music, sort of 19th century parlor music, obviously African rhythms via, you know, whatever, via plantation melodies. I mean, this whole, you know, jumble that's coming into the diaspora. And, um, and it's, I think it's it's the first form of American mainstream music because it gets wildly popular at that. Um, I'm bad sometimes at remembering years, but I want to say was it 1893 the the World Expo, uh, the Columbian Exposition, and that's when ragtime kind of passes from black traveling bands to like the wide white listening public who's just like hearing the strains of this music as they you know go through these fairgrounds was two million no how many millions of people millions of people came through the fair and that was really the moment when it became a national craze and of course it was scandalous and like you know the devil's music and all of that um and then but but what develops in ragtime i mean just you know the syncopation of ragtime is really what led to jazz. And then, I mean, you know, as, as we know, jazz leads to everything else, swing, R&B, rock and roll. Like it's all, it's all there. So you can trace these roots straight back, really. And I think, you know, I mean, a, there's sort of a bigger answer about the, the continuous presence of ragtime, but that's maybe a little bit less essential. I think it's really just the transformational nature of that, form that led to you know led to everything else yeah absolutely mm-hmm. your questions are wrong so i'm gonna let you go with <laughs> okay so she's gonna make me responsible for all the wrong questions um but these are these are cool though so you know these are more continuing in this 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 idea of busted history so i, I like that we're fixing these and um we mentioned how even though people like joplin and, and others were classically trained there was uh, a lot of the stereotype at the time was that black people were somehow innately musical and so all of this training and talent was sort of relegated to this category of instinct um but in your opinion where does joplin stand in sort of like the pantheon of classically trained similarly trained composers of his time yeah i mean certainly he did not have the immersion that others did have you know which is partly a factor of where he was born and raised and where and how he was born and raised. You know, there were other composers at exactly that same time, like Harry T. Burley and um, Robert Nathaniel Dett, who, you know, were raised in the North from families that were one step further away from oppression and, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Sort of disenfranchisement, um, you know, educated families who went, much further and went to conservatories and took leading roles in, in that community. Um, Joplin didn't have those options, but he was very much self-educated, you know, so he had these early lessons with bizarrely a German Jewish immigrant who had ended up in Texarkana, you know, at this time mm-hmm. when people were just moving around and shifting around and ending up in strange places for strange reasons. And he trained Joplin, you know, he really gave him a formal classical education. Um, but, you know, Joplin, I, I think in his early years probably had a dream of being a classical pianist, which he knew fully he couldn't accomplish. So he set about making a living, you know, and, and the ragtime gig was a good one. 
And he was very savvy. You know, when you look at how he approached publishing and sort of band leading and all the things he did, he was a good businessman. Until this dream of writing an opera, of writing the first great African-American opera sort of took hold and became an obsession and led him to sink all of his money and time and emotional energy into that vision, which, you know, did, was not fulfilled in his lifetime. So it's, you know, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a sad intersection, I think, in a way. He wrote two operas. The first one was Lost. Um, mm. but I mean, you know, if you think about the amount of time in his short life that he devoted to pursuing this really unrealistically ambitious idea. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I think about a lot is how quickly, how soon after his death, it would have been a realistic idea. Wow. You know, here comes the Harlem Renaissance right around the corner. Yes. Right. Yeah. To be yeah. able to make that happen. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, his, his health kind of turned very quickly and he faded fairly rapidly. Right. Once that yeah. happened. Yeah. 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 Um, so I also feel, you know, projects like this, when you're talking about busted history, we're also just like giving these people a second shot, you know? Yeah. Yes. The ability to do that. Yeah. We're yeah. allowing their stories to be told. And I think that that's the the, the, the beautiful thing about these reflect that is a, is a reflective album. And it, doing. and it helps to change what we always talk about is sort of like common knowledge. You know, this, these generally held ideas that we all have that, you know, regardless of what the actual history says or regardless of what um, actual study would reveal, you know, we, we, we just feel like things we know about them, like the idea that classical music is an entirely European art form with strictly white contributors throughout its history and that there are no people of color either past or present. And we know that that wasn't the case. So we know that from, from people like Joseph Malone to Scott Joplin to now, with yourself and others, that there are a number of, of people of color who are contributing and have contributed to this art form. So while we have you and while we have the opportunity, um, let us know about who else should we know? Not just in, in history, but who are some of the other great composers of color, musicians of color now that, that we should all be adding to everyone listening or watching that should be adding to their playlists? Oh, I love that question. Yeah. Of course. That's the best. Okay. Oh, where do we start? Well, I mean, I'm so fortunate that I'm working with so many composers of this generation who, you know, I think are entering into this, into this world of music with a very different vision and acceptance and potential. You know, I just want to say really quickly what what you were just saying. I, I think that the other part of rewriting history or retelling these stories, it's really important. And I think about this a lot is that, you know, the story we always hear is like this black person did this amazing thing and, you know, achieved this first, you know, was the first to do this mm-hmm. thing despite all of the barriers and despite all of the, you know, all mm-hmm. of the struggle and the, the terrible things that happened. Okay. True enough, but also, I think we really need to think about the love that these people had for doing what they did, right? Mm -hmm. Scott Joplin loved writing music 
Yeah. So even if they were telling him that, nah, you know, we don't really want your opera. He loved writing that opera. He loved the yeah. act of imagining and writing that opera, you know? Yeah. And Jackie Robinson loved playing baseball, you know, yeah. right. Those, these are that, this is what drives you to keep doing this thing. That is an impossible thing that you're doing. So, yes. Yeah. You know, and I think that the best thing about living in our time is that that impossibility factor is, is lessening. So that's, you know, so you can just focus on the loving of doing what you're doing. Yes. Um, the passion. Yeah. So some really great, um, current composers, Carlos Simon, Jesse Montgomery, um, really young composer whose work I've started to play quite a lot. Quinn Mason is like 25 years old. Um, Valerie Coleman, beautiful composer. We should, I should give you a list. I'll send you a list, but there's. That would be wonderful. Yeah. It's really an exciting time. And, and the music is coming with a, with a really specific um, desire to tell a different black story. My friend, Will Liverman, who's a baritone, he, he's, you know, he, he's, he was the lead in Fire Shut Up In My Bones at the Met last year. Wow. And Will is, you know, still in the early phases of his career. He just won the Beverly Sills Award. He's doing great. Wow. But he, his vision is bigger than just doing leading roles at leading houses. He's also, he's also just written and produced his own opera called The Factotum, which is based mm-hmm. on the Barber of Seville, but it's set in a barbershop in Southside Chicago. How and, interesting. You know, he wants to write a Black opera that is a joyful opera, that is written for Black audiences, you know, that is just bringing a new audience into the opera house and, again, opening that door for the next generation. And I think, you know, a lot is going to be accomplished in the next uh, we are yeah. excited. We're going to add all these folks to our, mm-hmm. our playlist. Yeah. And I think just to, to wrap things up, Laura, just, you know, what are you working on next? You're, you're always working. It seems like on something really amazing. I know before this album you had done, Marian, you had done something around Marian Anderson's work. Um, now you have the Joplin album. I understand that you're working on something for Juneteenth that that'll be coming up as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a Juneteenth single coming. It's by Margaret Bonds, who was a composer. It was She was from Chicago, super active in the Harlem Renaissance, close collaborator with Langston Hughes, and she wrote incredible music. Um, this is a piece that she wrote in the mid-60s. It's called The Credo, and it, was, it eventually became a large-scale work for vocalist, chorus, and orchestra. Um, set to the text by set to the Du Bois text. And it was premiered just after her death in 1972 by the LA Philharmonic. So, you know, it's the 50 year anniversary, but this is from her original solo piano, really draft of the piece. And it's just this incredibly beautiful piece of music that, um, you know, expresses belief, like belief in, you know, the, the inherent goodness of the world and the, potential of the future so I'm really excited to release that and I'm also this summer premiering a new piano concerto or suite for piano and orchestra based on songs by Billy Strayhorn I'm doing that with the Boston Pops and the Philadelphia Orchestra and you know Strayhorn is another figure whose life and work deserve I think a new a new perspective um yeah and I've started publishing editions of some of this music by black composers that's been really overlooked, you know, kind of freshening it up and giving it new interpretive ideas and really beautiful covers and, you know, getting this music into the hands of the piano teachers and the piano students so that we start hearing it 
you know, all over the place. Oh, that is incredible. Thank you for all that you're doing. Um, There's there's so much more that that we we would love to ask more because we we wouldn't understand a word of it, but we would love to to hear more about just the layers of interpretation that go into giving new, you know, breathing new life into the work of composers like Joplin and and others. Um, I'm very, very interested personally in, in finding if there's anywhere, I don't know, I have to search the internet to see if there's anywhere you can, can find Trimonisha. Um, just in that was, was Joplin's opera, because I, I would love to see if it, you know, uh, what it actually was and what it was about. Um, I'll send so. you some, some good links and yeah, I mean, to be continued, there's so much here and I feel so excited every day when I get up and I, you know, usually go to bed that same night with five new ideas bubbling. And, you know, to go back to the beginning of this conversation, I could never have dreamed at the beginning of my life in music that I would have the opportunity to have these adventures and to do, you know, to do work that is just like sort of turning on lights. You know, I mean, yeah. It's such a privilege. It's crazy. Yeah. Isn't it amazing when you kind of carve your own path, like you said, something that you don't ever imagine, but what you're doing, I mean, one, you're, you're helping to actually tell a more complete American story, um, which is so critical and important for all of us. Um, but also, you know, you're working with this next generation as well. You are the next generation as well and opening um, us up to new interpretations, new music, um, finding ourselves new genres that I think not necessarily Black people today don't feel as connected to yeah. the classical genre. Yeah. Um, and so that just the importance of the work you're doing, I mean, it has so many layers to it. So it's exciting. I'm excited to continue following you on Instagram and, and following when your new albums pop up on on iTunes and, and things like that, and just um, continuing to listen and, and be edified by your work. Thank yeah, you definitely. so much. This was so fun. Oh, well, thank good. You. Thank, thank you, you so much. I've always got one more question. He always has one more. <laughs> do you have a favorite Scott Joplin song? Oh, I do. I think I do. I think I really love Solace. Mm. For we for strange reasons. I mean. It's it's a piece that I just started playing for myself a lot during the pandemic and just sort of locking into the really comforting nature of it. But it's also a really interesting piece of music because it's got it's he subtitles it a Mexican serenade, which is not whatsoever. It does have Latin rhythms in it. And what it says to me is that here's Joplin. He's in New York at that time. This is like the first decade of the or a second decade of the 20th century. And there's all this music that's, you know, coming through. And people are hearing stuff they've never heard before. And this is when Latin music is just starting to like surface in nightclubs and things. And it's just this kind of portrait of America for me. That He's writing this beautiful ballad and he's hearing new sounds and he's making new sounds. And that's just like what we keep doing over and over again. We got to let you go, but I, I hope I hope there's an opportunity to continue this conversation. And hopefully, sometime, sometime we can meet in person. Yes. We'd love yeah, to. Yeah, you know, I do. I I come I come to Rochester. I I've oh, okay. been with the students at Eastman. So, oh, okay. Well, please let us know when yeah. you're in town. We'd love to get together. Great, I will. All right, Laura. So great Thank to speak you so with much. you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thanks. Bye bye.